The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning we want to go to the fourth chapter of the book of Job. And we're going to begin reading here. We're going to look at the first of Job's miserable comforters, a man named Eliphaz. In chapter 5 and verse 7, Eliphaz makes the statement, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Eliphaz's approach to Job's troubles, as we've already talked about in the last message where we kind of conducted an overview of all of these miserable comforters, is that he comes to Job from his own experience. Now, you know, the, you know the background. I don't think I have to review very much, but just to remind ourselves where we are, Job, who is living in a very righteous manner, but yet who still has some pride and self-righteous issues, self-righteousness issues, is, is now being afflicted not by God, as most of the world would say, but by the devil who had his uh, target, if you will, had his sight set on Job. And because of the hedge God had placed around Job, he could not get to him. You know, as we've already said many times in this study of Job, uh, people think that, that God brought Job to the devil's attention. But the truth is the devil already had his bullseye upon him. He already had a target placed on his back and he just couldn't get there because of the hedge. And rather than God afflicting Job, as many people think, it's the devil that's trying to get him and ultimately God does remove the hedge, but only to a certain extent. And praise God, he does that today. He is still the great keeper of the hedge. See, the we said this from the beginning of this study. If we misunderstand what's going on in Job, we are very likely to misunderstand the nature of God. God is not a great manipulator. God is not some deceptive, arbitrary God like Zeus and, and Hera and all those, uh, that pantheon of Greek and, and Roman gods that were always playing tricks on humanity. God is not playing a trick on Job. And remember the three primary themes of the book of Job. I'm not saying it's an exhaustive list, but it's at least the, the three that jump out to me are patience, that is the patience of Job, in the way he endured his trials, and, and also pride, that is twofold, the pride of God about Job's actions. He, you know, God said to, said to the devil, he said to Satan, have you considered Job? He's a great, he's living well. Now, he's not elevating him or boning him in the flesh. Job was a child of God. Job was a born-again child of God, and as a born-again child of God, he's able to please God, and God delights when his born-again children live in a way that pleases him. He delights in that. He loves the fellowship with his children. He was proud of Job, but also the second aspect of that pride is the pride of Job and the pride of his friends. And we're going to see some of that starting to come out throughout this, these episodes where his friends come to him and they begin to, to bring these arguments and accusations against Job. And Job begins to defend himself. And, and, and then ultimately, as James tells us in chapter 5 and verse 11, pity, pity is one of the great themes of the book of Job, the pity of God. God, we're told by James, is very pitiful and of tender mercies. And if you come away from Job with any view of God other than that, 
then you've missed out on what the book of Job is talking about. Yes, he's great. Yes, he sits high in the heavens, but praise God, he looks low upon his people. He, dang, he condescended even to become flesh, to become a man in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God was so pitiful and so, so much of tender mercies toward his children that he even came down here as a man, divested himself, laid aside his glory that he had in heaven and came down to walk these, these dusty roads of death down here on this earth. So that's the background. And now we see Eliphaz, who has come to, to Job, along with Bildad and Zophar, whom Job calls miserable comforters, by the way. Uh, they, they come and they sit silent with him. The best thing they ever did was be quiet. <laughs> Sometimes that's the best thing we can ever do when it comes to, to someone of, who, is, who is hurting, who is grieving. But here we finally find Eliphaz beginning to open his mouth. In the third chapter, Job had begun to bemoan his estate and he began to, uh, to cry out before them in pain and, and in mourning over what's happened to him. He's lost all the things that he had materially. He's lost all of his children and he's now lost his health. And he's, he, he, he's praying, God, I wish I'd never been born. I wish that if, I, if, if you would just let me die in the womb, if you would let me die immediately after birth. And if not that, Lord, I wish you'd just kill me now. This is a man who is hurting. This is a man who has been afflicted in so many ways. You know, you've been there, I've been there, where it seems like just one thing after another after another comes upon us and it piles up and it gets worse and worse. And finally you get to the point where you wish you could die. Elijah got there. Elijah was sitting out under a juniper tree. He had experienced some great things in his life, but yet when the pressure came, it began to crumple him. He began to, he began to fall under it and he was saying Lord I'm ready to die Now we know that suicide does not send you to hell that's what the world teaches right that if you kill yourself you're going to hell we know that that's not the case the way you leave this world has no impact whatsoever on where you end up but we also believe that suicide is the absolute wrong answer you know how I know that <laughs> primarily from the life of Elijah Elijah thought his work was over. He thought there was no hope for him. He thought there was nothing he could do anymore. It was time for him to die. He wished for himself that he could die. Lord, kill me, he says. Same thing Job is saying here. Lord, kill me. Take my life. You know what Elijah had left to do? He didn't know it. All he could see was his circumstances, what was right in front of his face. God finally... By the way, he treated, some, he treated him physically, didn't he? He fed him. He put him to sleep. You know, sometimes when the load gets too heavy, we need to rest. We need to eat right. That's, that's pretty clear from Elijah's case. He needed, he needed some physical treatment. You know, it's okay. <laughs> there's, there's, there's time. We have doctors today that can help us in a physiological way when we get overwhelmed in life. And that's, that's, that's absolutely okay. It happened in... Elijah's case, but ultimately, we need to remember what happened to Elijah. God finally looked at him and he said, what are you doing here? Why are you so down and out? And he said, I've, I've, I've done all this for you, Lord, and, and they're, they're out, you know, uh, they've slain all these prophets, now they're, they're out to kill me. I'm the only one left. 
God said, get up and get to work because i got 7,000 just like you. You just don't know it. Don't ever think that what you see happening in your life is all there is that's going on. There was a scene that Job could, there was a situation Job couldn't see. All Job could see was the loss of all of his, his stuff, all the loss of his family. He could, but there was a scene that Job had no idea was going on between God and Satan there in the worship service even. He was there at a time when they were all come together to worship God. And Satan and God invisibly there to the human eye were, were, were present. He told Elijah, he said, I've still got work for you to do. Elijah's greatest work, the greatest work of his ministry was left to do after the juniper tree. He thought it was over. He thought, you know, he had slain all those prophets of Baal and it was a great thing, but he still had to anoint two kings. And not only that, more importantly, he had to anoint his successor, Elisha. He had to, and, and by the way, the other beautiful thing about Elijah's life, and I could easily get off preaching about Elijah this morning, so I'm going to move on after this. You know, Elijah, he said, it's just not worth it, Lord. I'm, just, just kill me. Just take me out. Guess who didn't die? <laughs> Elijah didn't die. <laughs> Elijah wanted to die. He thought there was nothing left but for him to die. Guess who didn't die? One of two people in the Old Testament that didn't die. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Elijah was taken home on a chariot of fire. <laughs> I can just see him. I hope. I don't know how... I know the Lord has a sense of humor. I, I, I look in the mirror and I know he's got a sense of humor. I know the Lord has a sense of humor, I believe. And I just got to believe that at some point in that chariot that they must have dipped right down by that juniper tree and let Elijah take a look at it. And I know he's just shaking his head and laughing all the way home about how foolish he had been. <laughs> I, I just believe it with all my heart. I, don't, I can't prove it from the scripture, Brother Mackey, so I won't, I won't preach it as doctrine, but I believe it. <laughs> Job is in the same condition. Job can't see what all's going on. And Job has been crying out in pain. And now's the time, now's the appropriate time for his friends to try to help him. But there's a problem with his friends. Maybe a problem with some of your friends. I know it's even been a problem with me myself before. They know a lot of truth. And a lot of what they say we're going to see is true. And even the same case with Job. Job is going to speak a lot of truth throughout this book. But the problem with truth is that you not only need to believe it and understand it, you need to understand how to apply it. And what they were doing is they were taking some things that were true and they were misapplying them to Job's case. And that's what happens here as Eliphaz begins his rebuke of Job. Now notice his approach to Job in chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. So far, so good, right? Listen, I, I, we want to talk to you, Job. Is it okay if we talk? Is, you know, he's kind of approaching him kind of a, in, a, in, a, in an almost timid way, but, but you're fixing to find out he's not very timid. And he said, hey, man, you're doing, you know, he starts lifting him up. You, you've, ta you've taught a lot of people and you have upheld those that are weak and you've kept those who are falling from falling down and, and you, you've done some good things. But now I want you to know he starts off easy. But notice in verse four, or verse five, rather, he says, but now it has come upon thee and thou faintest. It toucheth thee and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? 
Now here, Eliphaz begins to display the self-righteous attitude that all of them have, including Job, by the way, as we'll see. He's, he's saying here, okay, you can dish it out, but you can't take it. You can dish it out, but you can't take it, Job. You've done all these good things, but now look, man, it's hit you. Now, now you know, what's up with this? You're, 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 he's, he's being harsh with Job. And notice then what he says. In verse 6, he said, Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of the ways? This is that self-righteous attitude. He's saying here, your fear or your reverence of God is your confidence. He said, Is not this thy fear, thy confidence? In other words, your, your faithfulness, your faith, and then he says, your integrity, the uprightness of thy ways, is thy hope. That's, that's where you look. That's where you need to look. It's... it's, it's it's inside you. The, 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 the degree to which you fear God is what's going to uphold you. The degree to which you are faithful to Him is what's going to help you. And he says this. This is what Eliphaz believes, that, that Job's righteousness should be his confidence. That his faithfulness will be his salvation. Apply this to yourself, Job, even as you have applied it to others. Now, I don't know what Job actually said to others, but apparently it was something along these same lines. Just hang in there and do right and you'll be okay. Be faithful and things will get better. You know, we hear it today, don't we? Name it and claim it, you know. The, Eliphaz and his friends were the first proponents of the prosperity gospel. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be suffering all these things. And it's going to get even worse because he's going to ultimately, as, he, as we're getting into his argument here, uh, he's ultimately going to accuse Job of secret unrighteousness. He's going to look to the conclusion of the matter. He's going to look to what's happening to Job, to the ends of Job here that he can see, and he's going to assume some things that he shouldn't. And neither should you and I. Neither should you and I. Now, now, let me just say this. Let me pause right here and give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. We have the benefit of the whole scriptures. They don't. As a matter of fact, if we understand and believe that this is the first book in the Bible that was, that was ever written, like I said, Genesis deals with the first things, but we're told by the scholars and the historians, and it's pretty well accepted that Job was written even before the books of Moses were written. If we understand that, then you realize that not only don't they have the benefit of the New Testament, they don't have the benefit of any of the Testaments. They didn't have any writings. God's revelation was given in a different way. In fact, this is the inspired Word of God. Now, Job gets the, <laughs> the dubious honor of being the, the first one whose experiences are recorded in an inspired way in Scripture for us. So Eliphaz begins to approach Job and you can see a little bit of his harshness and legalism coming through. Notice now as we look in verse 7 his argument this is where he starts his arguments to Job and this is his argument from his experience. His argument remember we said before that Eliphaz is calling on his experiences to, to, to talk to Job. Bildad will talk about history and, and historical experience but, but Eliphaz is talking about his own experiences and notice in verse 7 the first thing here we read is, basically he says, Job, it's been my experience that people reap what they sow. Look here, remember, I pray thee, verse 7, whoever perished being innocent, 
Or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, you see, my experience, I've seen this. They that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. In other words, Job, my experience is that people reap what they sow. This didn't come out of nowhere. He's going to say that explicitly in a minute. And he says in verse 9, By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. In other words, I don't care how big and bad you are, when God decides to bring you down, buddy, you're coming down, and it's always because of something bad you did. Two problems with this. The primary problem is God's not doing this to Job. He says, by the blast of God they perish. No, this isn't the blast of God, Eliphaz. This is not the blast of God. This is the blast of Satan. This is the blast of Satan. Now look, I know the question you're thinking. It's the same question. I, but, but didn't God lower the hedge? Yes, he did. And we're going to talk about that later on in this series on Job. Yes, God lowered the hedge. And the sufferings that Job experienced, ultimately, God overruled for his glory and for his good. But, but right here, this is Eliphaz, in some senses, being an absoluter, Brother Mackey. <laughs> in some senses, he's saying, everything you see that's happening, God's doing it. You know, that's, that's what the absoluter, that's what the, the true Calvinist says, is that every single thing that occurs is pre absolutely predestinated from before the foundation of the world by God. And you know... If you believe that, then Eliphaz is exactly right. By the blast of God, this is coming upon you. But remember, as we've said, it's not God that's doing it, and we're not absoluters. Now, I want to stop here and say one other thing. You remember when I told you earlier that we have to be careful in reading the book of Job? You have to rightly divide it because there's a lot of truth in it. But most of the time, the truth is misapplied. Here's some truth, okay? Eliphaz is right. Uh, now, he's saying, he, this is what he's saying. If you were living a godly life, you wouldn't be experiencing these troubles, okay? Now, that's how he's applying this, but the principle of sowing and reaping is true. Sowing and reaping is a true principle. Over in the book of Galatians, uh, in the 6th chapter, in the 7th verse, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That is a true principle in the Word of God. And, and by the way, ultimately... Ultimately, God always blesses his children. Ultimately, he always does. But the question here is not ultimate, but immediate. What's happening here? See, this principle of if you do good, you will be blessed, versus if you do wrong, you will, you will not be blessed. That's a general principle in the Word of God. But the problem with this is, is that even though that's a general principle, a principle is not a law. God did not decree that every single time you do something good, you're going to get a penny for it, you know? The idea is not that every time you do something good, you're going to get a blessing for it. Uh, that is generally what happens. But what about Psalm 73? What about the 73rd Psalm? I'm not going to turn there and read it, but if you'll go over there and turn there, if you get in your, in the idea in your head that every 
time you sow something good, you're going to reap something good. And every time you sow something bad, you're going to reap something bad. You're going to get as confused as Asaph was who wrote that psalm. And you know what he said? He said, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. And the reason for that was he was seeing how the wicked actually prosper in the world. There are, there are wicked in the world who prosper. There are things that happen that, that fall out to the good, apparently, it appears, to the wicked of this world. Now, ultimately, Asaph came back to the conclusion, after going to the house of the Lord, that their feet were on slippery places. You know, someone said this one time, and it's true, the only heaven the reprobate will ever see is what they experience here in this life. And the, and the flip side of that is the only hell a child of God will ever experience is what they experience here in this life. And see, ultimately, God delivers on the principle of sowing and reaping. Not that we're working our way to heaven, but that that which Jesus Christ sowed, that which he did when he died for his children, ultimately paid the price for them and, and, and will, will, will cause them to be ultimately completely blessed in heaven. But here and now, it doesn't always work out that way. But that's what Eliphaz thought. He said, Job, it's been my experience that people reap what they sow. That's what I have seen. And then ultimately he backs it up with, with a weird experience. <laughs> now, now, I'm not saying the Lord, certainly in the scripture, we know the Lord sometimes speaks to his children in dreams. I'm not saying the Lord still doesn't get involved in our dreams somehow, but I've known of people that have placed more emphasis on dreams than they have upon the word of God. And you know what Paul said about that? He said, if I or even an angel in heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. There's a man named Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith claimed that he saw an angel in New York about 150 years ago who gave him another testament. He gave him a new revelation from God. And based upon that revelation from that angel, he founded the Mormon church. Well, I don't know if he had a vision. I don't know if it was a demon. It might have been a dream. He might have eaten some bad collards and he had a nightmare. I don't know what it was. But I can tell you this, anything that goes contrary to the word of God, you need to throw it out. But listen to here to what listen to what Eliphaz says. In verse he says, "Job, I've had a supernatural experience, so you ought to listen to me." Verse 12, now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof, in thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men. Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice. And he's fixing to tell us what the voice said. He's saying, Job, you need to listen to me because I've had this vision. You know, I appreciate the respect that you all give to me as your pastor. I appreciate that. And, and, and I try to be a good example. I try to be faithful to study the word. I try to be faithful in prayer, although I fail miserably in both of those many times. And I try to be uh, an example to the flock, as Paul said we're supposed to be, okay? Well... <laughs> I don't think there's any danger of you all elevating me too high because you know me too well. But I've known situations where preachers, pastors were elevated to a higher level than maybe the congregation. In fact, even in one place where I 
where I was preaching for a while, uh, I used an example of some way that I had failed that particular week. And a lady in the congregation came up to me later and said, Brother Chris, uh, you just don't need to bring yourself down to our level. <laughs> I said, dear sister, I'm below your level. I'm not on your level. That's right. I'm down below your level. <laughs> That's the way I see myself. So as, as the pastor, certainly your pastor is supposed to be your leader in a spiritual sense. But, uh, but, but I don't have any greater authority to talk about what I think or about what I've seen than you do. Now, you ought to listen to me if I'm preaching the word. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 28 says, The prophet that hath a dream, well, let him tell the dream. It's okay if I have a dream some night and I want to come down here and share it with you. I remember Brother Oliver. He used to have dreams about mules all the time. And I loved hearing about them. But I'm not going to preach about it. <laughs> I'm not going to get up here and preach about it. He says, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. But he that hath my word, let him speak the word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? In other words, all this dreaming stuff, I mean, there's occasions in the Word of God, and if it's in the Word of God that the Lord spoke to someone in a dream, it's true. But apart from that, you can discount it. And, and notice here, I don't believe, I don't know what this was, I'm not, but, but it doesn't appear to be an inspired dream from God. Most of the time when it's an inspired dream from God, they say, thus saith the Lord. Or that vision will be clear that it is God, okay? But otherwise, all this is just chaff to the wheat. You know, the chaff is that portion of the wheat that you sift out and let it blow away. It's only the wheat that you need to hang on to. But he says, he says, Job, I've had a vision, and here's what my vision said. Verse 17, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? I want to go back and tell you again what I said to start with. There is some truth in what they say. And these verses here are true. I'm not saying the dream was true, but listen to what he says. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Those three verses of do to preach on, let me tell you, they're true. Mortal man cannot be more just and more pure than his maker. Even the angels were charged, charged with folly. Some of them fell. If you can't trust the angels, you sure can't trust those that dwell in houses of clay. But again, remember that you can know the truth, but you can apply it in a wrong way. And, and what he's doing here is he's saying, I've had this vision, Job, and based on this vision, something's wrong with you. Verse 20, they are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. In other words, Job, now you've been, you've been saying some things about wanting to die and, and you've been experiencing all this and you're missing the point, Job. Job, you're just a man and you've got some sin in your life. You've got some problems, son. And, and, and I want to tell you about how destructive sin can be. Now, before we go any further, let me just ask this question. If you're sitting there in the dung heap, scratching yourself with a pot shard because you, you are covered in boils and grieving not the loss of one, not the loss of two, but the loss of ten children, grieving the loss of everything you've ever 
built in your life. Do you really think you're going to take much comfort out of somebody coming to you and talking about the destructiveness of sin? I think I said this last week. With all the deaths that have occurred lately, what if I went up to one of the loved ones or one of these that have passed away and, I, and said, is there weeping by the casket and said, well, you know, he didn't deserve any better anyway. He was just an old worm of the dust. <laughs> he deserved this. You know, that's true. Did you know that you and I, as we sit here right now, deserve death? We don't just deserve death. We deserve to be cast into hell. You deserve it. I deserve it. The Proverbs writer says, a word spoken in due season is like apples of gold in pitchers of silver. There's, there's a time to be talking about that. Sometimes I preach on that. But there's also a time to focus not just on the majesty and omnipotence of God, but upon the mercy and the love of God. And here he's focusing Job on the fact that sin destroys in Job. There must be some problems with sin. And then in chapter 5, he turns to his argument from observation, not just his experiences in his own life, but observations of what, notice verse 3, for I have seen. You know, that's, that's where we come back to. I've seen this. Call now, verse 1, if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I have seen the foolish take root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, neither is there any to deliver them, whose harvest the hungry eateth up, and taketh it even out of the thorns, and the robber swalloweth up their substance. He's saying again, this is what I've seen happen when men don't live right. And notice in verses 6 and 7, here he gets to the heart of the accusation against Job. You remember our, our title of the message? Here it is. Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. In other words, when you light a fire, the inevitable consequence of the fire is that you're going to have sparks flying upward. Joe, this problem you're experiencing didn't come out of the dust. It didn't come out of nothing. There's a, there's some, you know, you heard the old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, I understand that. that that's some truth to that. But here, that, that is a true statement about some things, but that's not true here in Job's case. Job here, he's saying, Job, the reason that this is happening is because of some sin in your life. And notice what he said. He even said in verse 4 that his children are far from safety. How would you like to lose 10 children to death? And someone come to you and say, man, it's your fault. You're the reason they died. <laughs> Job, the foolish man, may take root, but, but his habitation is taken away. His children are cursed because of him. Job, you got problems. Everything happens for a reason, Job. And here the reason must be that you did something. Notice his appeal to Job now, verse 8. He says, I would seek unto God. Essentially, he's saying, Job, you've got to get right with God. You've got to get right with God. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. 
And he goes on to describe these things about giving rain on the earth and exalting those that mourn to safety and disappointing the devices of the crafty and taking the wise and their own craftiness. You know, again, these things are true. It's good advice to tell someone to look to God. But here he's saying, Job, you've got to get right with God. The reason you're being beaten here, the reason you're being uh, uh, tortured and, and, and having all these problems is because you are not right with God and you need to get right with God. Listen, I understand that's always the first place we ought to go in the midst of suffering. If you're experiencing suffering yourself, you ought to examine your life and see, say, Lord, is this something I've done that's causing this? But like I said last time, if, if, you, if you sincerely seek the Lord's answer of that, He will tell you. And if He doesn't tell you, that means it's most likely not the chastening hand of God. I never chasten my children without telling them why. And God's a much better daddy than I ever was. He won't ch- I've had the chastening of God in my life. You know, there's never been a time when I've been chastened by God that I didn't know exactly why. It doesn't take much spiritual sense, just a little inkling of spiritual sense to seek unto God and find out why this is happening, if indeed it's happening because of your sin. And let me just say this to you. Other than me, or or you maybe in a general way, exhorting one another to examine yourselves, and all of us to examine ourselves, there is no place for me to come to you when you're in the midst of suffering and say, this is God doing it to you. Because I don't know. See, that's, that's between you and God. You need to figure that out. Now, maybe I need to encourage you as your pastor, hey, you know, pray to him. And, and some people have asked me before, say, Lord, what have I done that the Lord's doing this to me? Well, my answer is this, is that seek unto him, and he'll tell you, and if he doesn't tell you, it's probably not God doing it. But it's not my place to do what he's doing here. He says, he says you need to get right for God, with God because whatever's happening to you is because God is doing it. And, uh, and in verse 16, he says, So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom the Lord correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. In other words, Job, this is clearly God doing this, and we know that God really isn't doing it. See, that's the problem. He's leaping to conclusions. And he's saying, you ought to be happy about this, Job. (laughs) You ought to be happy. You know, James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. But he didn't say it would be joy. I'm not happy in the midst of temptations and trials. But I can count it joy, just like Christ counted the cross joy. He said he endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He didn't enjoy the cross, and there was no joy in the cross. The joy was set before him. Beloved, in our trials and temptations, there's no joy usually. I don't, I don't get up in the morning and say, hot dog, I'm going to get beaten today. You know, I'm, I don't want that to happen. I'm a baby when it comes to pain. I'm praying, God, help me through this. But if I endure it for the kingdom of God's sake, I know there's a blessing to be waiting for me on the other side. Not necessarily materially, but spiritually. He says, you ought to be happy, Job. Now, now, again, a caveat. We know that Job has some pride issues. And we know that the Lord did remove the hedge to some degree. And there is a place for God to remove the hedge, to suffer chastening to come upon his children. 
And Job will even speak to this later on. But notice this true statement. By the way, I'm not going to turn there and read it, but did you know that Paul quotes this statement? He says, happy is a man whom the Lord corrected. But here again is some truth that's misapplied. And notice as we bring this to a close, notice his Eliphaz assurance to Job. He goes on to say, He maketh sore and he bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make hold. He will deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven. There shall no evil touch thee. In famine he shall redeem thee from death and in war from the power of the sword. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Neither shalt thou be afraid of destruction when it cometh. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh. Neither shalt thou be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field. And the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace. And thou shalt visit thy habitation and shalt not sin. Thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great, and thine offspring is as grass of the earth. Thou shalt come to thy grave in a full age, like as the shock of the corn cometh in its season. Lo, this we have searched it, it is so. Hear it, and know thou it for thy good. In other words, if you'll just fix things with you and God, you're going to be happier than you've ever been. Everything's going to be right, Job. Just fix things with God. And by the way, I like what he says in verse 17. He says, Lo, this, we have searched it, so it is. In other words, you can count on me. I'm telling you the truth. Now, I want you to notice something here. As we, I know we're running just a few minutes behind. I want you to notice something right here. Who else has come into the scene here and said, people that serve you, God, don't serve you for naught. They serve you because of the blessings you give them in this life. Who else has done that? Back in chapter 1 and 2, didn't we read that Satan said that? Didn't we read that Satan said, doth, God, doth Job serve God for naught? The reason he's serving you is you have blessed him. He, Satan is accusing, he's a slanderer. He's accusing Job and he accuses us of being paid lovers of God. We love him because of what we can get out of him. Is this not the same philosophy, just in different words? Just confess your sins, Job, and God will give you back all these things you've lost. In other words, we, we don't serve him for naught. We serve him because when we serve him, all the things that, he, that, that we can get from him come to us. See, it's that same philosophy. Later on, Job is going to make a statement that's, that's a true statement. Again, might have been misapplied, but it's a true statement. He's going to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now that's a faith that we all need. What if he never blesses you again? What if he never again in your life gives you good health, peace in your family, peace with your friends? What if, what if you're never able to get out of the bed again and, and the rest of your life is filled with suffering and pain? What if you lose everything dear to you? All of your dreams fall apart. Everything that happens that, that you planned goes to pieces. What, what about that? Say, so, well, I just don't know if I could serve God under those circumstances. Why not? Because you see, there's a real sense in which we don't serve him for naught. It's just not the same naught <laughs> that this devil's talking about. Do you know why we serve him? 
It's not because of all the stuff we can get from you. I know the prosperity gospel promoters preach that, but that's not why we get it. I don't serve him to get my mortgage paid off. I don't serve him so I can buy this new four-wheeler. I don't serve him or I shouldn't serve him in order to get all these good things from him in this life because I've already got the greatest thing that there ever is, which is an eternity with him, an eternity of my sins having been paid for, an eternity of fellowship with God, a fellowship with the one who came down here and gave up everything he had everything for you and in fact became something that he hated in order to put away the sins of people that hated him in nature so job if god never blesses you again are you going to serve him child of god let me point the finger back at me if he never gives us anything again are we going to serve him? I hope so. I know I'm but flesh. I know I'm not what I ought to be. And I know there's sin in my life that I do need to confess. And you too. You've got it in your life. Search yourself. Search your heart. You need to ask the Lord to search it with you. But just understand that even if he never blesses us again, we ought not be paid lovers of God like Eliphaz is suggesting or like Satan accuses. We ought to be faithful to the one who was faithful unto death. May we, may we remember that we have all we could ever ask of God and more in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.